You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. It was 5 a.m., and I was desperately trying to figure out what I made to make my stomach hurt this bad. It felt like I had a huge rock in my stomach. Up until this point, my trip was going just as I had hoped. It was the summer going into eighth grade, and I was going on an exchange trip to Nicaragua. When I arrived, there were a lot of changes I had to adjust to. My host family didn't speak English, So our limited conversations consisted of my awkward attempts at Spanish and the response of try not to laugh. Before going to Nicaragua with Youth Cultural Exchange, I had numerous doctor appointments. I was told about all the mouth-watering fruits I would be offered, but I was also told about what I could and couldn't eat or drink. I was lectured numerous times on the importance of water and how vital it was to my health. Nicaragua's summer sun feels like accidentally touching a piece of metal that's been out in the sun for too long. It burns. This is why at 5 a.m., laying in my bed, I felt a little panicky. Did I drink the absurd amount of water bottles that my body required every day? I started to map out everything I consumed the day before. To start, I had a long, green, watery avocado that tasted like heaven with some rice and beans. Then, more rice and beans. You would think that one might get sick of rice and beans for every single meal, but no one could cook it better than my host mom. Realizing that my diet was pretty consistent every day, I came to the conclusion that something I ate was not my stomach's problem. Silly me, I decided to wake up my host sister and tell her that I was feeling sick. When I woke up as stare and tried my best to say I was sick, her face looked terrified. Alarmed, I tried to figure out what I had just said to her, but I was pretty sure I translated it correctly. Esther jumped out of bed, steered me back to my bed, and then ran to her parents. Next thing I know, her whole family is staring down at me in bed, all whispering. After a minute of panic, the family settled down, and Esther told me that they needed to pray for me. Confused, I laid in bed wondering what could possibly come next. Gradually, my Nicaraguan mom started singing and my Nicaraguan dad started moving his hands over my stomach, speaking passionately to God. As hard as I tried, I couldn't sink into the bed and hide from embarrassment. After about 10 minutes of prayer, the singing stopped and the mom said something about going to get Laura, our chaperone. Over the next couple of days, My host mom took care of me. She brought me crackers, bubbly soda, and chicken soup. Looking back on being sick, I've come to realize all of the sacrifices my Nicaraguan family made on my behalf. They were trying to bring me back to some sort of wholeness with myself and them. The sacrifices they made for for me came from hope. Hope for this new connection that was blooming between a Minnesotan and a Nicaraguan family. In order to sacrifice, you make yourself vulnerable. 
At the time, I didn't comprehend the vulnerability they were feeling on behalf of my well-being. The sacrifices that they made gave life to a deep connection that I will always share with them. How can I give my love away? A question that could not be more apropos given our worship theme this month. How can I give my love away? This month we are taking on the gnarly topic of sacrifice. It is a word, a concept that makes everyone uncomfortable, distrustful, and if I'm honest, a little bit surly. And it's rightly so. The, the religious tenet of sacrifice has been used to keep women in abusive relationships, created the justification to wipe out whole nations of people, landscapes destroyed, an equation of loss versus gain that usually involves some form of coercion or violence and is destructive in its nature. But today, I'm going to start with trees. Trees that say over and over again, how can I give my love away? Trees that in essence live out love and might, just might, share some wisdom about how we can reframe and reconsider sacrifice. So in 1997, a young PhD student, Suzanne Samard, went out into her beloved forests of British Columbia, where she had been born and raised and shaped in order to conduct an experiment for her PhD project. She wanted to see how carbon moved between different trees, or if it did. So she set up an experiment in which she planted a Douglas fir and a paper birch next to one another. And she labeled the trees with isotopes, markers. And one tree got C14 and the other tree got C13 so that she could track what was being exchanged between them. She then went on to shade the trees with little tents throughout this multi-year experiment to create different scenarios to which the trees would respond. In the first year of the experiment, with the trees growing naturally, the Douglas fir and the paper birch did indeed find connection with one another and exchanged nutrients and carbon in this beautiful reciprocity between species, back and forth, back and forth. They used that great underground highway, which is made of fungi and mushroom networks and their own root systems in this symbiotic communion for mutual benefit. Now, in the second year, she tried something different. She shaded the Douglas fir to different degrees with her tents. And the more the fir tree was deprived of its food, that is light and air, the more stressed out the fir became, and the more nutrients and carbon the birch gave 
to the fir tree. The more stressed out the fir tree became, the more nutrients and carbon the birch gave to the fir tree. This was the exact opposite of everything science had hold, held dear for a long time. That competition was and is the driving force of nature. That evolution depends on the survival of the fittest. And exploitation is baked into our DNA. Suzanne was coming to understand the deeply cooperative nature of life that one species would sacrifice for another's well-being in some kind of great exchange and healing. She characterizes this pivotal experiment as elementary in comparison with what we know now, and yet was such an important awakening in the arts of forestry and sciences. She recounts how people threw rotten eggs at her when her paper was published because it so upended their notion of the order of things. In those days, no one used the word communication when characterizing the relationship between trees in a forest. But that is exactly what is going on. Scientists are coming to understand what indigenous folks have been saying for a millennium or more. Trees talk. Trees talk. When you step onto a forest floor, there is 300 miles of fungal and root networks below your feet, 300 miles of communicating software. What we call a forest is actually a fraction of what a forest really is. Most of it is below the surface, beyond our human sight. Forests have elders, or mother trees, as Suzanne calls them or grandmother or grandfather trees, as indigenous people have named them. These trees nurture their community of neighbors and their young and provide defense, nutrition, support, and structure. We know that when a tree is sick or is experiencing some kind of insect infestation, it sends out an alarm message to the other trees around it saying, protect yourself, I'm sick, and they do. Trees carry legacy from previous times that regulate genes for themselves and other neighbors. We're understanding this incredible giveaway that happens at the end of a tree's life. When a Douglas fir understands that it is dying, it sends out a storehouse of chemicals and nutrients, and dare I say, love, back down into its roots so that it can donate its riches to the forest for generations to come in this profound last will and testament. 
The forests store massive amounts of carbon and, in fact, are doing their gut level best right now to counterbalance the lopsided ratios of greenhouse gases. That is what scientists are coming to understand right now in Antarctica, that the plants and trees are actually stepping up their game in carbon collection, trying to deal with the imbalance that they sense in the world. Forests spiritually integrate with the human spirit. There is a reason you feel better when you walk through a forest. This is not what I say as a theologian. This is what scientists are saying and discovering about forests. And indigenous people have lived and breathed in their cultural and religious patterns since time in existence. The forests are telling us something about love and sacrifice and this great exchange that is available to us all if we would but root ourselves in the question, how can I give my love away? I once sat with an old priest and a wise counselor as I was trying to figure out my path in ministry. And we were talking about living life as a sacrament. That is, making my life a visible sign of an invisible spiritual truth. A visible sign of an invisible spiritual truth. That is the age-old definition of sacrament. And he stopped me mid-sentence at one point and asked, may I? And my journal was sitting open between us so I could take notes, madly taking notes. And he took my pen and he drew an infinity sign like this. And then he said, sacrament is more than making the spiritual visible. It is more than giving up or sacrificing in order to be spiritually good. There is something in the giving that increases a gift and comes back on itself in this experience of receiving, an offering that expands the well-being, the life force in the exchange. It's the exact opposite of coercion or violence or exploitation. It is a way of unitive living. Unitive living. And I can't help but think about the forests as I think about that conversation, the concept, the practice of sacrifice, which means to make holy. Sacrament comes from the Latin word sacra, which means to make holy, a holy exchange. Now, love is many things. It is energizing, it is joyful, it is intimate, it is powerful, it is life-changing, and it demands sacrifice. Love costs. That's the honest truth of it. I think this is what Jesus was talking about when he was describing the kingdom of heaven or this idea of right relationship, a network of justice and peace that can emerge in the here and now of human community. 
through love. I can imagine him taking us on a walk in a forest and talking, talking to us about the trees. Where you love your neighbor, all the hundred thousand species of your neighbors, as an extension, a continuation of yourself. And when you do that, community is transformed and health and wholeness of the forest abounds. There was a couple I knew who had been together for a very long time, and I, I tell this story with their permission. 25 years or more into their relationship, one of their fathers died. And the woman had an extremely stressful job, and the sorrow was so heavy. So the beer she had once in a while became a beer at noon, with a beer while mowing the lawn, with maybe some wine at dinner, and maybe a beer before going to bed. Pretty soon she was sneaking beers around the house and trying to hide how much she was drinking from her spouse. She became forgetful and seemed to be knocked down drunk while appearing to only have consumed a glass or two of wine. Her spouse couldn't figure out what was going on. She wondered if something neurological was happening. She had such a clear and close, honest relationship up until that point, so the partner didn't question anything. And so they agreed to go to the doctor. And luckily, they had a very wise physician. And the doctor asked the woman how much she was drinking. And as hard as the question was, did she ever hide the amount of drinking from her partner? As they both recount this appointment, they say that the woman never really answered the second question. She skirted the issue. The prescription before doing any more tests was to quit drinking for two weeks and see what happened. And it was during that time that the woman revealed how much she was drinking, how much she was hiding, how devastated she was at her father's death, how hard and overwhelming her work was, and how scared she was. Scared for herself, scared about her relationship. She decided to quit drinking. And in support of her spouse, the partner stopped drinking too. Now when they recount this time in their relationship, they speak of sacrifice. The woman says over and over again, I don't know what I'd do if my partner was drinking while I tried to stay sober. I go to 12-step meetings and listen to how hard it is to stay straight when there's alcohol in the house. Yes, there has been sacrifice. This love between them has been costly, but it feels right. It is in balance with the generativity and well-being they experience together. They both talk about a new flowering of their relationship. The sacrifice they've made has moved them into the great exchange. 
But there is something in the giving that increases the gift and comes back on itself in this experience of receiving, an offering that expands the well-being, the life force of the exchange. Now, if a sacrifice looks and smells like exploitation, then it's not sacrifice. It's just exploitation, dressed up in some kind of religious garb to disguise its purpose and its true meaning. But if we don't get our heads around sacrifice, I don't know how we're going to address the huge issues that are staring us in the face. How are we going to address climate change without coming to grips with love for our planet and the generations coming up behind us? A love that costs something. If we don't get our heads around sacrifice, I don't know how we as white people will ever get our heads around reparations, by which I mean, as Ta-Nehisi Coates writes, our collective biography and its consequences as the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. More than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe, but a national reckoning that would lead to a spiritual renewal. Coates is talking about sacrifice in its true form, an offering that comes back on itself and is experienced as unitive living. I, for one, will go to the forest. I'll look for a mother tree and ask her to teach me. I'll sit at her feet and say, I am open. Would you tell me about the meaning of love and sacrifice and the great exchange of which you and I are a part? And I know she will share her wisdom because trees talk and they know the true meaning of sacrifice. Blessed be and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.